0: I invite you and encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm number 14, Psalm 14. And we want you to be able to look at the passage as we cover it today and each week. So the guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention. They'll give you one of those. Keep it. It's our gift to you. And bring it back each Lord's Day as we look at God's Word together. Before we get into the message, a couple of things that I wanted to mention. One is, I'm very thankful for the church family, and we use that term advisedly because the Bible uses family as the number one metaphor for the church. And so the byline for our church is that we are the family of God built on the Word of God to the glory of God. So I'm thankful for the brothers and sisters that are part of the family of God here. All are beloved, none more beloved than Ken and Emily Rapp. Ken and Emily have been with us since the beginning of our church. Why do I mention that? Because most of you know that Ken has been waging a battle with brain cancer for a good while, had uh, surgery on that some time back, but has been uh, steadily uh, making progress. And we're delighted that God has brought Ken and Emily to be with us today in person for the first time in a very long time. So I don't want to overwhelm Ken with everybody rushing at him when we're when we're finished here, but Ken and Emily are over by the uh, sound booth. If you do get an opportunity to say hello, please do that. But welcome back, Ken and Emily. uh, My wife Kim and I had a chance to visit with them in their home this past week, as we were able to do with uh, Hugh and Sharon Fairchild. And many of you know Hugh has been waging a very long battle with cancer as well. I'm just amazed at the attitude that he maintains. Uh, Sharon uh, has uh, God has given her strength through all of the procedures and all of the things that she's had to arrange, and we had a a wonderful time with them. A shout out then to Hugh and Sharon because they watch faithfully on our our live stream. I also wanted to mention uh, that I asked Pastor Larry to leave one announcement in the announcements for me to, to cover, and that is for our celebration dinner that will be in two weeks, two weeks from today the 10th of September at 5 o'clock. Now, I could have waited until next week to say what I wanted about the dinner, but I'm going to be out of town next week and I want to say a couple of things. First, I want to emphasize, as we do each year, that this anniversary of our founding as a church is all about an opportunity to acknowledge God's blessings to His people in this church for another year. And so our program every year at the celebration dinner is entirely just the dinner and then that's followed by voluntary testimonies from you regarding God's grace in your life for yet another year. So I encourage you to think about participating by saying some words of testimony. Now the some words means relatively few. So so each year I encourage you to, to jot down some thoughts before you arrive rather than trying to extemporize which is really much harder than most people think. You think you can just grab the mic and say uh, what you want pretty quickly, but believe me, you can't. It'll not come out the way you wanted. It'll take much longer than you realize or or both. And so I encourage you to be thinking about what you might say at the uh, celebration dinner. The other reason I wanted to make this particular announcement today is because our celebration dinner coincides with the final Sunday that Dr. and Pansy Combs are going to be with us. Most of you know they are relocating to Virginia. They'll be doing that the following week. Dr. Combs is going to teach for us the second hour on that morning, two weeks from today, and I prevailed upon the two of them to allow us to use that night to at least informally say goodbye. They would not allow anything more formal. I barely got them to agree to this. But as we give those testimonies at the celebration dinner, if you've gotten to know the Combs and they've been a blessing to you, as is the case for many of us, then please feel free to say a word of encouragement to them. Uh, That does not have to be a part of your testimony, if you even give a testimony, but I know many of us are going to want to avail ourselves of that opportunity. Celebration dinner, again, is just two weeks away uh, on the 10th at 5 o'clock. We have childcare for the testimony portion after the dinner, and I think that's for children K through fifth, does anybody, anybody what is it? Babies, we do, babies on to fifth grade. We have childcare for babies. Look at us, all right. That's not during the dinner though, that's after the dinner for the, uh, for the testimony portion. You need to register for that, it's $5 per person uh, for, uh, to defray the cost of the food, $20 maximum per family. All right, today we continue our series in the book of Psalms in a portion that is about God's assessment of humanity. Psalm 14 is an evaluation of humanity. It's an evaluation of all of us, not just some of us. And it can be made of all of us because we are organically related to each other. God can generalize about all people Because the Bible teaches that from one man, he made all the nations. And the Bible confirms who that one man from whom came all of us is Adam, calling him the first man in the New Testament, Adam. So the Bible teaches that we are related in Adam, both biologically and spiritually. Because the Bible teaches biological equality, It means, among other things, there is no racial superiority. And so the Bible condemns slavery in the Old Testament theocracy where the people of God had the power to enforce it. And it regulates it in the New Testament where God's people had no such political power. But because the Bible also teaches spiritual equality in humanity's universal sinfulness, it means that there is no moral superiority. And so the Bible locates the remedy for sin, not within ourselves, but outside of ourselves. The unity of our spiritual nature is what makes the oft-stated claim, but for the grace of God, so go I, to be true. Any goodness we have is not initiated by us, but by the grace of God. And therefore, when we see the sin of others, our attitude should be one of humility Rather than holier than thou. This was the great misunderstanding of the Jews by the time Jesus came. Namely, they had come to believe that the basis for God's choosing them was their spiritual superiority. They were right that God had and has chosen the nation Israel for special use in his plan for his world. But individual Jews are not spiritually superior because of their lineage. And it will not be until they repent as a nation, which they will do one day, that they will fulfill God's intention for them. The apostles asked Jesus just before He ascended back to heaven from which He came, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by His own authority. Now, note there that I've highlighted, underscored, that word restore. We'll see it again in just a moment. Shortly thereafter, with Jesus now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, one of those apostles, Peter, said to the Jewish people in Acts chapter 3, fellow Israelites, repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that He may send the Messiah, that is, Send the Messiah back at this point, who has been appointed for you, Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to do what you asked about just a bit earlier, to restore, same word, to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. You have the same Greek word in both passages, one the noun form, the other the the verb form. And so in Acts chapter 1 and in Acts chapter 3, what you have is the apostles asking, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And then Peter saying in chapter 3, heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through the holy prophets. You see the restoration of the kingdom will happen when the nation repents and only those who repent will be part of it we tend to think the jews were a confused mess when the messiah came but their error lay in one area in particular namely Far too many of them thought that because they were biological Jews, they were also spiritually God's children. Friends, God has never had grandchildren, only spiritual children. And Jesus made that clear to the Jewish religious leaders. He famously told one of them to a Pharisee. A man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, Jesus said, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And then Jesus chided Nicodemus in that same chapter for not understanding that, to be sure, the Jews had come to misunderstand something, but it was that that they misunderstood, Their misunderstanding was not whether there was going to be a kingdom. The misunderstanding was who gets in. And who gets in are only those who are born again, only those who repent. And so Jesus said, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? You see, the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, had pointed to this very truth. That there must come a time when God's people are going to be and will be in his, what Jeremiah calls, the new covenant. They will come to him in mass and repent. They were not wrong about the kingdom. They were wrong about who gets into the kingdom. Just a few chapters later, Jesus had yet another encounter with his Jewish religious opponents. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father. As is God himself, they answer. And Jesus, as you have heard me say over the years, never read How to Win Friends and Influence People. And he says in response, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. They did not recognize the Savior because they did not recognize, hear this, their sinfulness. They did not have the moral sensibility to see their need, and so the need for Jesus, whose very name Jesus means God saves. And so the angel in Matthew chapter 1 to open the New Testament announced the birth of Jesus and said to Joseph, you are to give him the name Jesus. Here's why. Because... That name means God saves. He will save His people from their sins. They should have recognized their need as all people must see their need. From passages like ours today in Psalm 14. Rather than seeing what this passage today says as talking about other people's kids because we think we are somehow better. We should see our solidarity with all humanity, and so the indictments of humanity in Scripture, including this one, dear friends, apply to us outside of Jesus Christ. Let's pray then and ask God to help us to see that. Father, thank you for the blessings of this day already to be able to sing praise to you to be able to give back to you, to be able to fellowship with your people now with your book open before us. Teach us, O Lord, and help us to have attentive minds and open hearts. May we be changed so that we better understand who we are before you, how blessed we are in you, and that we serve you this week better than before. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You should have received an outline when you came in as each week, and I say in that outline, first of all, Humanity is estranged from God. Now, in the outline, I've referred to humanity because the psalm describes all of us, as I've said, outside of Christ. And so, I have we and us in the points that follow. This psalm describes what we are naturally because we are born into this world with a sin nature. Another term for our sinfulness is depravity. In the title of today's message, at the top of the outline, you see there is deliberations on depravity. Now, blessing and what blessing is are the theme of the entire book of Psalms. It's a theme that's introduced in the first two Psalms, which introduce the entire book. The very first word, as we saw a few weeks ago, of Psalm number one is blessed, as in blessed is the one who... And then it gives the characteristics of the blessed person and contrasts that person with the wicked. And then Psalm 2 elaborates on how the wicked pursue the life that God has given, and it involves carving out their own way without God. Psalm 2 ends like Psalm 1 began, speaking of the one who is blessed. And in that way, those two Psalms introduce the entire Psalter. Namely, how some people live out their God-given purpose to bless and be blessed and how others take their own path to their own detriment. Psalms 1 and 2 express two different images of life under God. One is life as a flourishing tree we saw in Psalm 1, planted by waters it will not be moved. And the other life under God is seen as an oppressive bondage that has to be cast off. And which image forms you will determine your path and your ultimate destiny. The author of the book Musing About Music, which is about the book of Psalms, in which we have and I recommend in our resource center, says all people desire blessedness, even ungodly people. But the problem is that the ungodly pursue blessedness apart from God. As Martin Luther notes, all men, whoever they are, have strayed from the knowledge of true blessedness. Most of all, those who made a special search of it, such as the philosophers, the best of whom have identified it with virtue or virtuous works. Thus, they've made themselves more miserable than others and have robbed themselves equally of the blessings of this life and the next. For although the common people are grossly out of their mind to strive for blessedness in the pleasures of the flesh... They at least have partaken of the good things of this life. That is, some theorize about the proper way to blessing and they think it's by their virtue, their goodness, they'll achieve it. But they will not. Most people don't theorize at all, they just live the way they want, enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, but that too misses the blessed purpose that God has for humanity. Because in both cases, their image of blessedness is apart from God. But a righteous person will have an image of blessedness under the rule of God. I had mentioned a few weeks ago that when we started this series, that we're not going to have sermons on all 150 of the Psalms last week we looked at Psalm number 8, today Psalm number 14. That choice is not random. And by the way, if you're keeping score next week, it'll, in two weeks when I'm back, it'll be Psalm number 19, Psalm 19. But that choice today for Psalm 14 is not random because Psalm 14 rounds out the unit of Psalms that started with number 10. Psalm 13 is a prayer that called on the Lord to rise up and save as He said he would in Psalm number 12 because of the threats of rebels that we read about in Psalm number 11. And now Psalm 14 reflects on the foolishness and the corruption of the wicked and makes them culpable and it will bring about their certain judgment because humanity is estranged from God. That estrangement is seen, as I say in the outline, in that we first of all deny him. Verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Notice what the person who says this is called, a fool. And that's because it's not ignorance that causes one to say there is no God. Foolishness is not the same as ignorance. Ignorance means I don't know. We're all ignorant of some things. Many of us are ignorant of a lot of things. But for all of us, there are just some things we don't know. But foolishness is failing to acknowledge and act upon what we do know. Perhaps you remember from our series in the book of Proverbs that wisdom is the application of knowledge, putting into practice what we know. Foolishness is the opposite, failing to put into practice what we know. So this is saying that humanity says there is no God even though they know otherwise. Now, how can the Bible make that claim, that people know that God is, but they fail to use that knowledge? We'll see some of that answer in two weeks when we look at Psalm 19. But for today, I want to remind you of what Scripture says elsewhere about humanity's knowledge of God. Romans chapter 1. What may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. That is, God has made Himself known in a way that's clear to all, and so all are without excuse for failing to live as though they are creatures made by and accountable to the Creator. And it's not just some vague notion of something out there that humanity has been given. The next verse in Romans 1, verse 21 says, because, for, although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now when it says they knew God, Many of you know that your New Testament was written in Greek, and in Greek it has the definite article. It's literally then, although they knew the God, they do not treat him as such. And the devastating result is in the next verse. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, failing to use what it is they know. Humanity as a result of this, by nature, by nature, does not like to think about God as he really is. And so Romans 1 goes on to say, they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. See, this is the reason, friends, when you talk to a family member, you talk to a neighbor, you talk to a coworker, and you bring up God. People may have talked to you about all the private issues of their life. They may have told you all the things they did over the weekend, way more than you wanted to hear, TMI. But then you bring up God and they say, hey, 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 that's private. Can't talk about God. Don't like to think about that. This latent knowledge of God is why when the Apostle Paul visited the philosophical capital of the ancient world in Athens, Greece, he could assume that the philosophers he encountered there had knowledge of God and he could even quote their own poets to prove it. And he did so in Acts chapter 17. In him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. That in him we live and move and have our being is from the poet Epimenides from about 600 B.C., and we are his offspring from Eratus from about 300 B.C. Now, how can I include us in this, and for that matter, how can I include most of humanity in it, since even with the decline in religious belief in our day, still fully over 80% of adults in the United States tell Gallup they believe in God? So, atheists are still in the extreme minority, at least those atheists of the philosophical variety. But you see, there's another category of atheists. There's the philosophical atheist and then there's the, the practical atheist. And that's what's in view here. He believes in God theoretically on paper but not in practice. In fact, verse 1 says there is no God, and in Hebrew, which which the first part of your Bible was written in, the words there is is not in the text, but rather are supplied to help us read it. And so the fool says no God, as in no God for me, or at least no God for me in much of my life, even though if you ask whether I believe in him, I'd say yes. There are philosophical atheists, and there are practical atheists, and most people are the latter. We profess God, but we live as no God. Our functional God is some things or someone's other than the true and living God. There's the God you talk about on a theology test, and then there's the God who guides your living day in and day out, your functional God. And for far too many of us, they're not the same. And that's why biblical counselor Paul Tripp has said, I'm concerned with the level of functional atheism that exists in the church of Jesus Christ. Yes, we believe that God exists, that He created the heavens and the earth, that the Bible's accurate, and that paradise awaits, but we often live at a functional level as if there is no God. We worry too much. We control too much. We demand too much. We regret too much. We run after God replacements too much. We do all of these things because we have forgotten God's presence, power, and glory. If you look around and look at yourself, you'll see evidence of functional atheism everywhere in the lives of Christians. Let's ask ourselves this week, how many thoughts did you have, words did you speak, or decisions did you make that omitted the Lord from your process entirely? He goes on to say, there's another side to functional atheism that we need to be aware of. Maybe we aren't as extreme to assess our lives in a God-absent way, but perhaps the God we remember is small, distant, disconnected, uncaring, and seemingly unwise. In ways we don't realize, we experience trouble not only because of the stress of life in a broken world, but also because of how we interpret the character, size, and strength of the God who rules that broken. Many people, he says, have talked to me about the Lord in the middle of their difficulties, and after listening to them, I have been struck that if I believed in the same God they described, I'd be in a panic too. So friends... In our estrangement from God, we deny Him, but He, I say in the outline, denounces us. The last part of verse 1, they are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand. Any who seek God, all have turned away, all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Have you ever heard someone say, I've heard this many, many times over the years, someone will say, you know, the reason that I'm saved is because God chose me before an eternity passed." but here's how he did that. He looked down through the corridors of time to see who would choose him. And he saw that I was one of the people that would choose him. And so he chose me. So we choose first and then God says, yeah, me too. Let me get in on that. But that whole God looked down through the corridors of time to see who would choose him. Take a look at this verse now again. Verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. If God looked down through the quarters of time, who would He find? That would be nobody. And these words in verses 2 and 3 may ring a bell for many of you because they're found elsewhere in Scripture. One preacher said, not many things in the Bible are said word for word more than one. If the words are repeated, it is for emphasis. They are important. How then if they are repeated more than once? What if they're found three times? And that's the case with Psalm 14. It's repeated almost entirely in the book of Psalms itself. Psalm 53 is a nearly exact duplication. Only verses 5 and 6 are changed. And then the most important part of Psalm 14 is repeated in Romans chapter 3 in your New Testament, verses 10 through 12. In fact, the great first chapter of Romans, which we have looked at some already today, is actually an explanation of these words. Anything God says once demands attention. Anything He says twice demands our most intent attention. How then if He says something three times as He does in this case? This demands our keenest concentration, contemplation, assimilation, and even memorization. Practical atheism leads to inevitable negative actions and consequences. Notice the progression. At the end of verse 1, our nature is corrupt, all of us, leading to actions, deeds that are vile, and there's no one who does good. That is, it's natural for us to do evil and quite unnatural for us to do good. All the good that we do in God's common grace, we never do for the right reason, namely the glory of God. And that's why the Bible says, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. The well-known paraphrase of Dostoevsky in the Brothers Karamazov, If there is no God, everything is permitted, comes to life when sinful humanity is unrestrained. If there were no restraints on the nature of sinful humanity, the planet would be unlivable. The Bible teaches what theologians call total depravity. Total depravity means that sin has penetrated and affected the whole of the sinner's being. The phrase total depravity leads some to believe that outside of Christ, people are completely evil. But total depravity does not mean that the unsaved, the non-Christian, have no disposition to do right, that the unsaved never do any good, that the unsaved commit every possible sin, or that the unsaved are as evil as they could be. Now, why? Because thankfully, God restrains evil in His world, so that it's not as bad as it could be. And how does God do this? He does it through what's called common grace. This expression of God's grace is common in that it affects all people, saved and unsaved alike. Common grace usually operates through, the, through secondary causation, such as the influences of the gospel, the church, the home state, school, and the like. Wherever truth is propagated, by whatever means and for whatever motives, restraint of the progress of sin and the performance of civic good will ensue. Because of common grace, man retains some idea of what's good, beautiful, true, and upright. Philosophically, one needs to include the depravity of man, the sovereignty of God, and His common grace to explain Why unsaved men can rise to such great heights of accomplishment in certain areas and yet descend to such bestial depths in others. Humanity is estranged from God. And more quickly, humanity is frustrated apart from God. That is, they pursue blessing as they see it apart from God but it's futile, it's empty, it's a dead end. Humanity is frustrated due to, I say in the outline, moral insanity. Verse 4, Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. They never learn is the idea. And I used insanity in the outline because we all know that that's doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome. And that's what humanity apart from Christ does. Their determination to stake out life apart from God means there's an antipathy and an enmity toward those who pursue life under the rule of God. But they are oblivious to the fact that God will overwhelm them. Because in attacking the people of God, they are attacking God. And verse 5 says, He is present in the midst of His people. Dr. Joel Niederhood, a radio preacher in the past of the Christian Reformed Church, told of being in Moscow and attending a bookseller's convention. The fascinating thing about this convention was that in the age of, some of you will remember this word, glasnost, it's a word that, Russian word that means openness in the last days of the Soviet Union under Gorbachev. Under, at that time, the American Bible Society was present and was giving away Bibles. A long line of people patiently waited to receive their Bibles and as Niederhood told it, the line stretched several hundred feet into the display area where it passed in front of a neglected booth manned by 70-year-old Madeline Murray O'Hare, the famous and most famous of American atheists who sat there glowering. She must have been thinking, what fools these Russians are to stand in line for Bibles. They should be buying books about atheism from me. But it was she, not they, who was the fool. Because they had tried atheism and had found it wanting. She had lived for about as long as the communists had ruled Russia, but she had learned nothing. Humanity, apart from God, is frustrated due to moral insanity and due to psychological fear. Verse 5 says, but they are overwhelmed with dread because for God is present in the company of the righteous. I call this psychological fear because it's made clear in the other psalm that's virtually verbatim what this one says. Psalm number 53, one commentator points out that on this portion, Psalm 53 has an important variation, an addition. After the words, there they are, Overwhelmed with dread, Psalm 53 inserts where there was nothing to dread. In other words, the fear described is an inner fear occasioned by no visible cause. To put it another way, no one is threatening these unbelieving persons. They seem secure, as the wicked often do, but in their quiet moments, deep in their hearts, They sense that if this is a moral universe, and they suspect it must be, then they are guilty of many sins and will undoubtedly suffer for them, and they are unnerved by this and shudder at the thought. You guys have heard me say a few times over the last few months, desperation and fear are not a good look for the people of God. Friends, what do we have to fear? The last several years have shown many professing Christian people to be very afraid. Very afraid of the world. Listen, Christian people do not need to be afraid of the world, the world needs to be afraid of the Christian God. We're frustrated. Due to moral insanity, psychological fear, and ultimate failure. Verse six: You evil doers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. The wicked shudder, but the Lord certainly does not, and His people need not. Because of verse five says God is present in the company of the righteous. Verse six says He is their refuge. And I say it's ultimate failure because those who exploit others seem to do well for a time, but it will come to naught as the Lord Himself will guarantee it. So humanity is estranged from God and frustrated apart from God. And lastly, rescued only by God. Verse 7, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. The psalmist anticipates that when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, when he intervenes to make all things right, then the people of Israel and God's people, I might add, of all time will rejoice. For a time they are afflicted and appear to be humiliated by the world But in times to come, they will celebrate the Lord's victory over the world. Thanks be to God. And as with all prayers for deliverance from the presence and power of the pagan world, the ultimate answer will come when the Lord appears to judge the world. And friends, that will be a great day of deliverance. the final restoration and a time of endless rejoicing. Here's your take-home truth. Human depravity requires God's deliverance. We're going to bow and pray in just a moment. And as we do, that deliverance comes for you from the Redeemer, the Anointed One, the Messiah, spoken of as we saw back in Psalm number 2, and now known to us as Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is that one to whom the entire first part of your Bible, the Old Testament pointed. He came. He came to do the mission the Father had given him to die for the sins of his people. The Father approved of the entirety of his life and his death by raising him. And this same Jesus is returning again to make all things right with his people with him forever. I want everybody here to be a believer in the true and living God. Not... A fake God. Not your functional God that you pursue all week. The true and living God who is on His throne in heaven and desires and deserves to be on the throne of your heart every moment of every day. So you come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You need Him because this description in Psalm 14 describes us. The solution is outside of ourselves and so we need Him. He did what we could not do. You realize that you're a sinner. You recognize Christ did the work for you. He died on the cross for your sin. You repent. Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to go your way, not my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. You have the opportunity to do that now in this sacred moment. We're going to bow and pray. And from your heart to God, in your own words, no magic formula, you acknowledge that. Lord, I have seen myself described here. I know I cannot have a relationship with you except you give me that relationship. So I thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who did for me what I could not do for myself, paid the penalty for my sin, lived the life that I was to live, died the death that I deserve. I ask you to apply the work of Jesus to me and I give my life to you. Let's bow together. Father, we thank You again for this blessed time to look into Your Word, and if You were not a gracious and merciful God who gave us the solution to the problem of sin, it would be overwhelming to see a description of who we are and what we are and what we do from Your perspective. We thank You, Lord, that You never leave us in our despair. You describe accurately and realistically who we are, what our problem is, but you graciously and lovingly give us the solution in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for rescuing me, for delivering me from who I am and what I've done at age 19. I thank you for rescuing many others that are in this room and causing us then to desire to live the blessed life under the rule of God. Lord, I pray for any who came into this room who don't have that assurance, who have never bowed before you as the true and living God, but have simply acknowledged you as God, but lived for themselves as God. Save them, we ask you. Rescue them, deliver them. And we will give you the praise because salvation is from the Lord. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.